the hooligans of the NGO world, Global Witness. And I really quite like that. We take a, a very hard-assed approach to our advocacy. We're pragmatic. We always come to the table with solutions, but we're also hard-hitting. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. And this time, we welcome Patrick Alley to the podcast. Patrick is the co-founder of Global Witness, an NGO that is focused on investigating and exposing corruption. In the interview, Patrick and Matthew take a deep dive into the work of Global Witness, giving some very inspirational examples of how even small advocacy groups can have a profound impact on fighting corruption. Now, have fun with the interview. Greetings, this is Matthew Stevenson, and I am really excited to be joined today by Patrick Alley. Patrick is a director and a co-founder of Global Witness, one of the leading international civil society organizations that works on a wide range of topics, including human rights, environmental protection, and as most relevant for this podcast, issues related to corruption, money laundering, illicit financial flows, and associated malfeasance. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. A pleasure. Very glad to be here. Thank you. Perhaps we can start out our conversation by telling us a little bit more about your own background and about Global Witness. How did you and your co-founders come to start the organization? And how did this organization start doing so much of its important work on topics related to corruption and illicit finance? I met my fellow co-founders of Global Witness, Charmian Gooch and Simon Taylor, back in the early 1990s. And we met working for an environmental organization called the Environmental Investigation Agency, which had pioneered in using really investigative journalistic techniques to get evidence about various abuses and to advocate for change. And while we were there, we realized we had a shared interest completely separately in Cambodia, which at that time, back in 92, 93, was very big news. The UN was trying to bring an end to a long-running civil war. They were brokering the first UN-organized elections anywhere. And we were reading press articles about this just because we were interested. And we, and we read that the Khmer Rouge rebel group, the notorious genocidal rebel group, were trading in tropical timber with Thailand and funding their civil war against the Cambodian government that way. And we asked ourselves a question, is that an environmental issue or is that a human rights issue? And of course, it was both of those things. But at that time, and it's still largely true now, no organization focused on that. It fell in that gap between human rights organizations and environmental organizations. And we thought, If an organization used the kind of techniques that EIA used, they could cut the funding to that war, close the border, cut the funding to the war. And we thought, why don't we do that? And that's what we set out to do. And in the course of that, and, and I hasten to add that we, we actually were rather surprisingly, for a bunch of very naive and experienced people, quite successful in that campaign with a lot of luck on our side. But in the course of that, we started out thinking, well, the Khmer Rouge are the bad guys. The Cambodian government are the good guys. And we quickly realized that was wrong. Both the Khmer Rouge and the Cambodian government were, in fact, collaborating 
over this very valuable trade in timber, which was environmentally devastating, but also raising between 10 to $20 million a month, the Khmer Rouge. They were collaborating, and the Cambodian government has, has since been proven in spades is extraordinarily corrupt. And we hadn't really thought about corruption. It wasn't really an issue that many people were focusing on that time. And 93 was the year that we were founded and the same year that Transparency International was founded. And we realized that these deals depended on corruption. And so our original interest in this nexus between human rights and environmental abuses quickly introduced us to corruption and to the fact that in the area we work in, corruption was ubiquitous. Yeah, it's fascinating because I've spent a, a lot of time in corruption circles talking to people who work on these issues, and it's always struck me how many people come to corruption, for lack of a better term, sideways. They start out interested in some other issue. It might be environmental protection. It might be health. It might be infrastructure. It might be promoting entrepreneurship. There's a whole range of issues where people start out focusing on that substantive issue and then realize in the particular country or regions that they're most interested in a significant obstacle to achieving the, call them the first order policy goals that they have in mind is the corruption of the relevant government or sometimes non-governmental institutions. So it would be great if you could say a little bit more about having had this realization that many other people have in a variety of fields that fighting corruption is crucial to advancing what we might call the original objectives of, of promoting human rights, ending conflict, and protecting the environment. How did you and your colleagues at Global Witness go about trying to focus on corruption, anti-corruption issues? What, what strategies did you use? Was your approach to this issue in any way significantly different from the approach of other organizations? You mentioned Transparency International was founded almost exactly the same time. Talk a little bit maybe about the, the global witness approach to uh, addressing and advocating on anti-corruption issues. It's a really interesting question. Transparency International at that time and, and for much of their history have focused on governmental corruption. A key part of our ethos, I guess, was driven by anger and perhaps frustration at seeing some tremendous injustices done. What's now become known as the resource curse, we were pioneering and tackling that. We were looking at countries, we, you know, we've worked since globally in many countries in Asia and Africa and, and the former Soviet Union, realizing that countries that were richest in natural resources were countries that were very often extremely poor, ruled by oppressive governments, subject to terrible human rights abuses, while vast amounts of money that should have gone to the citizens of that country were flowing over seas to offshore tax havens, financial centers in Europe, the US and elsewhere. And we thought, okay, let's target the bribers, if you like. I think corruption is too often regarded as that's a problem over there in some kind of you know, terrible tropical country or something. Whereas, in fact, we quickly realized that actually Corruption is a global issue. We have globalization of, of the corporate world and, and similarly the criminal one. And we thought, let's target companies. Let's target individuals. Let's make this personal. Because we felt, and it's proven to be right, that people, even really corrupt bad people, really hate getting their name in the papers. They don't want to be seen as corrupt people very often, whether they're a politician, indeed a, a head of state or a 
an organized crime boss or someone you know lower down the tree really hate that and also of course corrupt people like to go and spend their money you know in a nice place you know london new york wherever it might be and so we wanted to make it hard for them we wanted to make it embarrassing for them and also that's not a gratuitous approach because the fact that we were targeting people resonated with people with policymakers we were trying to advocate with it wasn't just a concept that was bad it wasn't macroeconomic figures demonstrating the loss to a country it was this company this person was responsible for this crime and these crimes obviously as you know are very often multi-billion dollar crimes not small things so we became i guess i was I was looking at someone quoting uh, someone quoting us the other day or a quote about us rather which was the hooligans of the ngo world global witness and I really quite like that. We take a, a very hard-assed approach to our advocacy. We're pragmatic. We always come to the table with solutions, but we're also hard-hitting. Can you talk a little bit more about how you conduct these investigations to reveal the kinds of corruption and other sorts of malfeasance that you talk about? I mean, one of the things that's really struck me about Global Witness and one of the things that certainly doesn't make it unique because there are a lot of organizations that do something like this, but that's distinctive about Global Witness in the, I'll call it the ecology of the anti-corruption NGO community is the use of these undercover operations or investigative journalism or exposés. One would imagine, since people who engage in this conduct would like to keep it secret, especially when you're talking about not the petty bribes to some licensing officer, but grand corruption involving big corporations and high-level government officials, that they're pretty sophisticated parties um, that I would imagine would want to cover their tracks precisely because you say they don't want their names in their paper. So can you talk a little bit more about how you go about doing these exposés? How do you, and at this point, Global Witness is not just three people, right? It's a big global organization with, uh, with offices all over the world. How do you do this? And, and maybe I, I'm asking in part because I think that perhaps some of our listeners are in the advocacy and civil society community or younger people coming up in their own countries trying to figure out how to do this kind of advocacy effectively. So, so what would you say in terms of, again, both describing Global Witness's own experience, but also perhaps giving advice to a, a new generation of maybe smaller operations that are interested in using some of the techniques that your organization seem to be able to use so effectively? That's a good question. Um, it reminds me of a quote by Anissa Roddick, who uh, founded the Body Shop uh, chain of stores, who said words to the effect, never believe you can't have an impact. Have you ever tried going to sleep in a room with a mosquito? Uh, you don't need to be big. And our first successes were carried out by a, a very poorly funded organization with three people originally and sort of climbing up to four and five and six after a few years. Um, but you can have success. And I think it sounds obvious, but the information, the evidence has to be rock solid. You can't maintain any faith with someone you're advocating with, a decision maker, if they can't trust your information. So you have to make sure your information is accurate, credible, not exaggerated, measured, um, and your demands are also measured. That doesn't mean you can't be hard hitting, and, and I'll come to that in a minute. And the nature of the investigations vary. You know, if you're investigating corruption in the Amazon, that might mean 
being in a four-wheel drive, going down remote logging roads, seeing who's there because there's no other way to do it, or there didn't used to be um, in the pre-internet age. Um, now, of course, you can carry out extremely sophisticated database investigations, which COVID doesn't prevent you doing, uh, which is something I think really important to think about. But just to give a real example of a little bit of an investigation, we spent quite a few years. Well, one thing is time. You need to devote time. Some of our investigations take a decade. And it doesn't mean you don't have any information till the end of that decade. It comes in dribs and drabs. You don't usually get all of the facts in one place. And so you need to start realizing when you've got enough information to actually carry out your first bit of advocacy, which might be to try and get a regulation here or to get a particular person visa rescinded to a country or whatever, you know, and start needling the opposition. As soon as you can, start needling the opposition, the the, the subject of the, the corruption investigation, because their reactions to being needled are often very helpful. They get angry, they accuse, they sometimes make mistakes. And you need to look for anomalies or gaps in information. So some information may be freely available, but what isn't? Sort of look between the lines. So I'm thinking of a particular investigation we carried out over some years into a massive and now well-publicized attempt by a mining company to get hold of the world's largest untapped iron ore deposit in the West African country of Guinea. This iron ore deposit was uh, what is called Simundu. And Rio Tinto Zinc uh, had the concession to that deposit, a guy called Benny Steinmetz, an Israeli billionaire linked to, he always denies he has any say in the running of, but an advisor to a company called Benny Steinmetz Group Resources, bribed the fourth wife of the then dictator, Lasana Conte, to get that contract. Now, we didn't know that when we began, of course. we What we saw was Rio Tinto stripped of that concession, and then within a relatively short time, BSGR, Benny Simons Group Resources, getting hold of that concession. Uh, they were given it for nothing. They were expected to spend $160 million developing it. But within, again, another very short space of time, they sold just about around about half of their stake for $2.5 billion. Many times the health and education budget of that country, for example, to the Brazilian iron ore giant Vale. And it was called the deal of the century. What a fantastic deal this was. The industry press was full of it. And then you think, doesn't that sound too good to be true? And of course, we weren't the only people on the case. There were fin- uh, investigative journalists, Financial Times did really good investigations into this, a journalist called Tom Burgess. But we were on that case as well. And it needed a, a pantheon of people in kind of loose coalition, we weren't working with anyone, but we knew who else was working on it. And people brought different strengths, different bits of information to the table. And and it came down in the end to two pieces of information that we felt were critical. One of which is that as the press articles came out and BSGR mounted its denials uh, of corruption and articles came out saying Okay, this the fourth wife of the president, her name's Mamadi Toure, uh, had been bribed to help BSGR get the deal. And BSGR said, she's not the wife of the president, um, and we've never had anything to do with her. And we thought, well, why would they bother 
denying she was the wife of the president if they had nothing to do with her. It wouldn't matter to them, would it? And so we set out to, you know, with our contacts, probing our contacts to find out more. And what we managed to lay our hands on, you can see this on our website, was a film which was shot by a Ghanaian TV station showing the launch of BSGR's project in Guinea. Uh, and it was attended by this same woman, Mamadi Toure. So, okay, you've cut out, you've pulled the rug out of one aspect of the defence there. They did know her. Obviously, she was there. She was with, with the senior executives of the company. We got hold of a copy of her passport, which said she was the wife of the president. So you've taken out a plank of the defence. So not only have you taken out a plank of the defence, but you have um, exposed the, the misinformation at best that they're giving out. And also, a lot of the deals centred around a company called Pentler Holdings. And... BSGR denied they had any links with this company. They said it was run by a bunch of people who were well connected in the region and uh, they, they, they needed to use their expertise. And we managed through you know, trawling through company records, contacts again, to find out that that company had, in fact, been set up by companies linked to BSGR. So you've taken another plank of the defence. And what, meanwhile, investigative journalists were carrying out other investigations, leaks were coming out of Guinea, and you put the whole package together. And over time, we would come out with not big, long reports, as we sometimes do, but with kind of memos, if you like, uh, which we'd issue to the press, and we'd get good coverage. It would link into the, the broader pantheon of information. And just at the end of January this year, finally, Benny Steinmetz was convicted of bribery along with two associates and sentenced to five years in jail. He will undoubtedly appeal. His lawyer has said so. So you can you can get there in the end. But of course, what anyone must appreciate is that a lot of corruption cases are extraordinarily complex, as this one was. Very often they don't get to court. And very often if they do get to court, convictions aren't made because it's so complex. So you have to be prepared for a lot of knocks on the way. I, I would imagine. Um, another thing that strikes me is so interesting about the investigations you've been describing and others that I know Global Witnesses has conducted is that I presumed that to a lot of this work, you'll need local partners, I would imagine, right? If you're going to do work in Guinea or in Cambodia or in Malaysia or wherever, um, and you're going to do this kind of investigation, you'll need people who have the language skills and the familiarity with the local context, context and who know the local people and so forth. Again, at this point, Global Witnesses, I think, I, I gather, large and has offices in many countries. But I would have to imagine that for many of these investigations, you need to have people who are not employed by Global Witness with whom you can collaborate. Am, am I right about that? And if so, how, do you, how does the relationship work between an international NGO uh, like Global Witness, based in, for lack of a better term, the global north, and the, the people in particular countries on the ground that you're working with to do these investigations? I think it's a really interesting point. Um, I would like to just clarify that Global Witness, we're around about 100 people, but we only have offices in London, Brussels, Washington, and a small representative office in Beijing. So we're not don't have offices everywhere. I think one of the things, it's an important point, actually, the reason we don't is the few times we've tried it and you start exposing corruption at top level, you get kicked out of that country pretty soon. So uh, 
it's actually better not to have lots of offices all over the place. Working with local partners is critical, not in every case, because a lot of corruption, as I said earlier on, is actually carried out in Western financial centers or offshore. And that's very often where the work needs to be done. So if you're looking at crimes at the level of the one I described in Guinea, a lot of the criminality was overseas. Sure, a bribe was paid in Guinea. I think it was paid in Guinea. I couldn't actually tell you whether it was where it was physically paid. But a lot of the, the dealings about that and where the money ended up, you know, very often it's overseas from the country that the corruption is actually happening in. But of course, that's not always the case. And in our work, we make a real point of working with local partners. We can't do it without them. Uh, they can... They may have the language skills we don't have, and we obviously try and have as many linguists in our staff as we can, but you can't cover everything. But it's not just language. There are places where if we go, we stick out like a sore thumb, and local partners don't, which is good. The The counter to that is they're very often at more risk than we would be. Uh, a, a white skin in some countries gives you a protection it doesn't warrant, but it's a fact of life. It happens. And so we need to be very cognizant of the safety and security of our partners. It's You can never fully guarantee your safety in a high-risk environment, uh, your safety or anyone else's. But you can do your best to, to try and make sure you have the protocols in place to deal with that. And then, yes, you need to work with them. And one thing we've learned over the years is cultural more than anything is not to be too extractive. Whatever it is you're working on needs to benefit their work. If you're, if you're working in Brazil, where there's very extensive uh, and widespread civil society organizations, they have their own agendas. They're working on their own thing. Our job really is to try and help them if we can, if they need it, they may not, with their work. But also what we can do is internationalize it for them. Sometimes we may have better contacts in Washington, for example, or in Europe than they would. And so if there's legislative tools in those places, maybe we're better at accessing them than they are. They're better at getting the information in their country than we are. So you need to have those partnerships. It's really, really critical. Is it more often the case that you'll be interested in those cases where you do need to go into a, another country and you can't just do uh, the research you need to do by focusing on uh, Western or Northern jurisdictions? Is it more often the case that you'll develop an interest and then you'll try to find the right people to work with? Or is it more often the case that there will be some organization or concerned citizen or journalist in a given country that will reach out to you and say, you know, I've, I'm working on this investigation and we think there's an international dimension to it and we know Global Witness is involved. Will you come partner with us? Again, I, I see your final reports and I think they're fascinating, but even as we're having this conversation, it's occurring to me how little I know about the mechanics of how this all gets started. So can you talk a little bit about how those relationships tend to form, how the, how the and maybe if, if I can broaden the question a little bit, how do you pick, right? There's so many bad things going on in so many countries, unfortunately. How does the agenda setting process work in, a, in a, an organization like Global Witness. In the early days, the three of you just happened to be especially interested in Cambodia. So that was natural and obvious. Um, but now there are so many countries you could be looking at, so many transactions you could be looking at. How do you set your priorities, allocate your resources and so forth? So that's really two separate questions, but maybe put on a common theme. 
You're right that when we started out in Cambodia, we, we came around a particular idea. And the next campaigns that came along did come by people approaching us saying, there's an issue here, you should look at it. The, the first one of those was the issue of blood diamonds, which no one had looked at. And we exposed that issue after we, we, th- we said, yeah, we'll take it on. We investigated it, exposing how diamonds were funding conflict in West Africa. And then the next one was Liberia. And that came about because I was at a conference talking about Cambodian forests at Yale. And someone came up to me and said, you should be doing the same stuff on Liberia. And I said, oh, we're too small. We haven't got the, the, the money or the people to do that and dismissed it, You know, although, although I was sympathetic. And then two weeks later, by complete coincidence, I got contacted by a Liberian guy in Liberia. This is during Taylor's dictatorship there and said, we really need you to do stuff in Liberia. And I thought, well, two people asking me in the space of a fortnight means fate's doing something, we better do it. Um, it's it's less easy to, to to do that now, although I quite like that approach. But we realized as we, we built up experience from what seemed like connected but relatively random things. We started addressing part of a problem and then realizing that there's another part of the problem we're not addressing. And so we would expand our strategy to do that. And we would look for cases that would inform that strategy. So to answer one part of your question, it may be that someone comes to us with a leak of fantastic information or something like that. And quite often we can't take it up. It might be fascinating, but it might be a diversion to a strategy we're focused on. And that strategy would always be geared at how do we change things so if it's legislation where is the place we need to get that legislation what are the most useful cases going to be and going looking for them it may be that we will be opportunistic if someone comes with some information we think well actually we hadn't thought of that and that's good we can add it into the mix but if that doesn't happen then we need to go looking for it And and I'll give you an example of that, which was a rather belated realization back in 2007, 2008, that every corrupt deal needs a bank. And it seems blindingly obvious to anyone, but actually people weren't really looking at banks, the bank's role in corruption at that time. And it was just, we kept on realizing, well, this this bank, well, this bank, whatever's involved in this deal. So we started focusing on banks. And looking at corrupt deals in a variety of countries, ranging from the former Soviet Union to Africa to Asia, but in each case saying the money was transferred by this bank, you know, Citibank here or Barclays Bank there or household names. You know, we're not talking about fly-by-night bankers. We're talking about the, the center of the system. And we produced a report called Undue Diligence, which... Uh, focused on the role of banks in many corrupt cases. And it it kind of, because it was the first time that kind of report had been done, it kind of blew the lid on that area. And that in turn sort of came about with the focus on money laundering. So the banks were doing it, but how were they doing it? How was the money coming in? Where was it going out? And then where was the money being spent? The dictator who buys the super yacht, like Teodoro in Obiang in Equatorial Guinea, or those that buy high-end property in London or New York, uh, as we've seen with uh, the former secret police chief of Kazakhstan, ended up owning prime, 150 million pounds worth of prime real estate in the centre of London. How did that happen? So we investigate that. 
try and get the information. I could go more into how we sort of try and penetrate that corporate structure if you're interested in it. And when you have the information, especially when it's iconic, and this goes back to how you communicate. This uh, property did in London I just referred to was Baker Street, which is the fictional home of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so we targeted press stuff like that. And, and within no time at all, the prime minister at the time, David Cameron, took action and went on to host an anti-corruption summit. wasn't just us. Transparency International and other organizations were also looking at London property. But our contribution was that that deal, which was an iconic deal. And we we nailed the um, the investigative evidence. So continuing maybe a little bit on that theme, but but broadening a bit. So you've been working on these issues for almost three decades. I know, again, when Global Witness started, it was not focused specifically on corruption and illicit finance, but that very quickly became an important part of the organization's work. With that perspective, I'd very much be interested in, in your thoughts on how things have changed, if they have changed. Has progress been made over this quarter century plus? And if so, where do you see the most progress? I ask that in part because, as I'm sure you can appreciate, working on corruption can often be pretty depressing and frustrating because there's so much of a sense that nothing is ever changing and the problem is uh, persistent. And I'm curious whether you share that perspective or whether you think in the last 25 to 30 years, there has been significant progress? Uh, and if so, where and, and to what degree? I think there has been significant progress, but not nearly enough. Corruption is still very much alive and well. And the resources of organizations like Global Witness and, and our partners are minuscule in comparison to the resources available to the, the corrupt. But I think there has been progress both tangibly in terms of legislation uh, or particular court cases, and that has changed the global atmosphere around it, I think. Not enough, and of course, not universally, not everywhere. But just to give some examples, one of the early campaigns we worked on, I mentioned, was Blood Diamonds. When we were researching that campaign, a lot of people, going back to your other question about partners in country, critical to get a local perspective. And what all the locals were telling us was, you know, diamond, Blood Diamonds are bad, but the real problem here is oil. Uh, the government is stealing God knows how much. No one knew how much the leaders of the government from the oil revenues of, of, of Angola, which um, was, I think, the third largest oil producer in Africa at the time. And they said, you can't work on diamonds if you don't work on oil, because you'll be accused of being partisan, because the, there was a civil war going on, one side funded by diamonds, one side funded by oil. So we, we started looking at oil. And the government, of course, wasn't going to tell us anything. It was a country that operated very much in the East German mold. I and mean, you couldn't just go around and ask lots of questions or even go everywhere in that country uh, or get meetings with who you wanted to. And people were, were very much in fear of, of talking to organizations like us. So what we realized is, okay, well, the government isn't going to tell us how much money it's getting from oil. And no one knew the IMF didn't know. So we thought, but the companies know how much they're paying. And so let's get the companies and of course, the companies didn't want to talk to us, the likes of Exxon or Shell or whatever. They, they didn't want Chevron. They didn't want to talk to us. The, the situation suited them just fine. 
So this is where we managed to enlist the support of George Soros. One thing just to say to anyone who's thinking of, of going into this is you will be accused of being part of all sorts of plots if you start exposing super criminals. And so we're always being accused of, of being part of the George Soros plot. What we are part of is a coalition, a broad, loose coalition of organizations working to end corruption. And George Soros happened to get very enthusiastic about it and is a major funder of it, that's for sure, and not just us. He wrote to Tony Blair, the prime minister, who we had written to, but he, we were very small then and he wasn't interested in replying to our letter, but he met George Soros. And so that the issue started creeping up the international agenda. We conceived of and co-founded along with George Soros, Transparency International, Oxfam, Save the Children, and CAFOD, uh, the Publish What You Pay Coalition. And that was launched back in around 2002. And is now something like a thousand NGOs strong across the world, which is a dramatic success in itself. The fact that you have those organizations that led to the creation of the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which is the biggest mechanism, albeit a voluntary one, which isn't our favored approach, but anyway, uh, tackling uh, corruption in the extractive industries. And civil society had an equal place, has an equal place at the table at EITI. It brings together governments, companies, and civil society. So lots of countries who want to join have to let their civil society, give their civil society a place at the table. And they can uh, vet the information. So the governments who join need to publish uh, what they earn, the companies publish what they pay, and civil society can oversee the process and, and look at the difference. And you know the difference between those two numbers is is the critical one. So that's it hasn't ended corruption, but it was a massive step. And we were told at the beginning of all this, you'll never change the oil industry. And in some ways we haven't. It's still one of the most corrupt industries on the planet. But it's much harder to do what they did. And then of course with many allies uh, in the anti-corruption movement, we worked on getting Section 1504 of the Dodd-Frank Act, which required all oil and mining companies listed in the US to have to declare on a project-by-project project basis the money they paid to the governments of the countries they operated. Massive step. And that's what you always want to end up with is legislation. But of course, the industry through the American Petroleum Institute and, and individually lobbied massively against it. And of course, one of the first laws that Trump neutralized within about a month of taking office was that one. But it got there and it got the industry worried. And who knows what, what can be achieved in, in, in the new administration. Similarly, in parallel, we managed to get similar laws in the European Union. So the companies that may have escaped for a while in Trump's America don't escape in Europe. So those are, you know, big, big steps. And just, you know, one more example to bung in is the use of anonymously owned companies to the, the getaway vehicles of crime and corruption. The the property deal I referred to earlier resulted in David Cameron pledging to have a public registry of companies in the UK, which we've now got, not perfect, but it got, and that we now have in, in the EU and in various other jurisdictions. So, and, and again, these are all things hard won by many organizations, not, not just by Global Witness, but we played a leading role in all of the ones I've just mentioned. Let me ask you, you mentioned um, George Soros, uh, and that made me think about something else I was going to ask you about 
that's in some ways the flip side of my earlier question about how do you find your local partners to work with? It seems like for many of these campaigns, not so much the exposés, but the, the efforts to change policy to get new legislation, um, in many of those efforts, it's useful to have powerful allies, right? Where it's not just global witness. You may be the mosquito in the bedroom, but still, right? It's hard to get new legislation if it's just you and other kind of do-gooder NGOs. And it seems like in this example that you just mentioned, it was useful to have George Soros to be able to write to Tony Blair. My impression from having spoken to other people who work in the civil society activist community is that sometimes there are either challenges in figuring out how to make common cause with folks who might not necessarily be completely you know, behind your agenda in other respects, or just generally uh, there can be some value in being creative about thinking about how to form uh, unlikely alliances. And you you brought up the corporate transparency uh, issue. On a recent episode of this podcast, I was speaking with uh, Gary Kalman, who you may know. He was formerly of the FAT Coalition, is now directing Transparency International's U.S. office. And he was very active in the fight to get anonymous company ownership reform in the United States. We now don't have a public register. When I say we, the United States still doesn't have a public register, but at least now when you form a company, you have to provide the beneficial ownership information to the government. And my podcast conversation with with, um, Gary, one of the things that he was emphasizing is that one of the things that got this campaign moving forward is when they got the banks on board, right? They normally wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily normally think about the banks as being, you know, pro-transparency, but in this case, they really wanted that information and they were able to get faith-based organizations on board or other kinds of organizations that might not be your traditional anti-money laundering, uh, anti-corruption organizations. And I was curious if Global Witness... Uh, has similarly found itself in situations where you're forming alliances with or making common cause with groups or organizations maybe outside of the usual circle of anti-corruption human rights organizations? And if not, if there's a a reason for that, or whether it's just that you guys have a different strategy and approach to your advocacy? No, you're quite right. It's it's an essential part of our arsenal. And and Gary certainly has been a long-term ally in, in our efforts in this direction. I think this first really occurred to us around the, the time of forming Publish What You Pay and the early days of trying to change the oil and mining industry. And we realized that without champions in industry itself, we weren't going to succeed. We weren't getting any volunteers from the fossil fuel industry or uh, the mining industry in general. But we did talk to institutional investors who invested in those industries. And we ended up, I can't remember the numbers now, but you know, several trillion dollars worth of institutional investors came up with the business case for transparency. And that was a key part of our advocacy. It's not just a bunch of do-gooder NGOs, as you call it. This is what investors want. They see that corruption is bad for business. Um, and that's the thing that will carry a politician more than any amount of advocacy by an an organization like ours. And in the banking sector, I remember meeting with the the CEO of HSBC shortly after they had been fined just under $3 billion in the US and under a deferred prosecution agreement for helping launder Mexican drug money. And he was, you know, quite nervous because he didn't have access to any law enforcement information. And he was intensely conscious of the fact there may be loads of accounts at the bank that were owned by dodgy people. 
uh, many didn't have the information to to penetrate all of that necessarily. And he hired quite a few people from the FBI, MI6, the banking world, the government world, to sort of try and help them through that. But the, the bottom line is that he was under a deferred prosecution agreement, or his bank was anyway, and he didn't need to be caught for anything else. I think they were free times for other things, but anyway. And so they were kind of an ally in some respects. I remember we talked to him about corruption around uh, agribusiness in Malaysia, and they shut down, HSB shortly after shut down their, uh, was it not their whole operation, but kind of their wealth management operation or something in that region. They would never admit that that was connected to the conversations we had, and I couldn't say that they necessarily were, but the timing was interesting. And... Similarly, with the, with the property deals I talked about, you need to get the banking sector again, perhaps, or uh, the real estate sector or aspects of people within it to come on your side. That's what you need to convince and realize that corruption is actually damaging the overall economy, the reputation of their sector. So it's a bit of a long answer, but you do need the private sector on your side. You won't always get all of it. But it's an important thing to do. And, and right now, we're looking at a connected subject, which is mainly aimed at, in our case, at trying to stop deforestation, which obviously is a climate critical issue and, and one very often caused or where, where corruption has, has played a major role. And also the killings and attacks on land and environmental defenders. And we're working with other organizations in the EU on legislation which is coming in this year to look at mandatory supply chain due diligence. And again, you want as many people in industry to support that as you can. So it's not just an NGO thing. And you need the politicians in Europe to realize that many of their commitments, whether that's around climate change or corruption, cannot be met unless they support something like this. So we don't have that much time left, but I, I wanted to make sure I asked you, a lot of my questions have, have asked you to take a kind of backward looking perspective and reflect on campaigns that you've done or work that you've already done. You've mentioned at several points, the number of challenges that lie ahead and alluded to reforms that you'd still like to see take place or legislation that, that's, that's still in process uh, or that you like to push. And, and I guess I'd like to pick up on those threads of the conversation and ask you to look ahead and if you were going to try to lay out what you think are the most important priorities for the anti-corruption agenda, the global anti-corruption agenda for the next five to 10 years, say, what do you think are the most important topics that we need to focus on, the most important challenges that we face, the most important policy reforms or new legislation, either in a national level or a global level, where you think that anti-corruption advocates and uh, reform-minded policymakers should really concentrate their attention? It's an interesting question, given the timing. Global Witness has undergone over the last couple of years uh, a complete strategic rethink, and that's born of the urgency around the climate crisis. We, we figured a while back, working on corruption in the oil industry, sort of, it occurred to us along the line, well, if we ever did end up with a, a non-corrupt oil industry, we're all going to drive over the climate change cliff in a nice clean car, uh, which isn't going to really help us very much. And so we, we're now looking at climate as central to a lot of the work we do. And that means that the sum work that we've traditionally done, which 
uh, we're tying up the loose ends of, but won't any longer do. We won't be really focusing on, as an organization, for example, on beneficial ownership. We wanted to stick with that until it came came in in the US and we have it in Europe. And we won't be looking at straightforward corrupt deals for the sake of looking at the corrupt angle of them. We will be doing the same kind of thing as it impacts on areas that we've outlined in our strategy, which essentially we're looking at subsidies to the gas industry in, in the EU and the US. Um, and there is kind of corruption writ large. I think this is an important point. You know, we've long thought corruption is way beyond paying money to get a deal. You know, corruption is corruption of the political space, uh, corruption of political systems, which we've seen, you know, in, in the US elections and in the Brexit referendum, for example. So those are critical areas. So we have one campaign looking at digital threats to democracy, for example. It's an evolution. We think that a lot of the work we perhaps made our name on there are so many organizations now following that work around the world that we don't actually need to be doing all of that. So let's focus on stuff where we can use our skills going forward. We're still working on forests because they're critical to climate change, but we're looking rather than you know illegal deals here and there, we're looking at agribusiness. And that does include corruption. Uh, how does an agribusiness company, a beef company, whatever, get its deals? Um are its claims to environmentally friendliness, deforestation-free, palm oil, soy, whatever it might be, are those accurate or are they not? We need to keep on exposing them. Similarly, with our work on land and environmental defenders, you know, looking at the commodity companies who are trading the, the sugar or the palm oil or, or whatever it might be, how they're keeping to or not keeping to their, their legal and other obligations. Um, and I, for us, I think that that's a critically important point that if we, do, if we don't win the climate battle, then all of the corruption campaigns aren't going to be <laughs> worth much. But that, that said, I think that you know, I really exhort other organizations that are working on all of the stuff we used to work on. It's great that you are. Please keep doing it. I think impunity is a critical one. It's, as I said earlier, it's still very hard to get people into court. Uh, there's a court case going on in Milan right now of the senior executives, including the CEOs of NE, Italy's biggest company, oil company, and, and also senior officials in Shell for a corruption case that we and others have been following for years in Nigeria. And, and 17th of March, we're going to hear the, the verdicts of that. But and they'll, of course, appeal. But it's not often the bosses, the individuals get caught. You know, a company can pay a fine. It's the cost of doing business to carry on. When you start getting executives going to jail, then you start seeing real change. And I think there just needs to be zero tolerance for that. I think there needs to be zero tolerance for allowing money stolen somewhere else to be spent in in the US, in the EU, or wherever they happen to, to manage to launder it. And so people need to get, you know, be really robust on things like unexplained wealth orders, as we have in the UK. <laughs> and just one thing by way of humor, you know, I'm always amazed by how high court judges in the UK have this unshakable belief that the the younger members of the families of dictators somewhere else have this tremendous entrepreneurial ability to make money. And uh, surely that, that's no coincidence with the fact they're losing the state. So I, I think a focus on, on that kind of stuff and a zero tolerance for, for where you spend your money and for, for committing those crimes. Teodoro Nobiang, the son of the president of Equatorial Guinea, has 
been convicted of corruption, his assets have been seized, but he's still a free man. That can't continue. So um, a lot still to work on, obviously. I, I want to thank you both for your time today on the podcast, but really more importantly for your nearly 30 years of work, you and your colleagues at Global Witness and in the broader community uh, for your advocacy on corruption as well as climate, human rights, uh, and a variety of related issues. And I think that it's extremely useful, especially as you say, as Global Witness starts to turn its focus more specifically towards uh, the, the climate change agenda for you to lay out uh, the set of priorities for the up and coming generation of, of younger anti-corruption advocates to, to really focus on. So, so uh, thank you so much. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your time uh, today on the podcast. It's been incredibly enlightening and uh, I appreciate it. Our guest today on Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast has been Patrick Alley, a director and co-founder of Global Witness. Uh, again, thank you so much, Patrick. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about the work of Global Witness, check out the show notes and go to their website, that is globalwitness.org, and follow them on Twitter under at global underscore witness. The interview touches on many aspects that we have previously discussed on this podcast. Go back to our episodes 6, 18 and 39 to hear from the Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalist Frederick Obermeier and David Barbosa. Also check out episode 32 with Robert Manzanares, who was the lead investigator in the Obiang case, which Patrick mentions in the interview. They also refer to the interviews with Gary Kalman, who had been twice on this podcast in episodes 24 and 48. Now, as always, if you like what we do, there are three main ways to support us. Write us a review on your favorite podcast platform, follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP, or become a Patreon under patreon.com slash kickbackpodcast. We are fully self-funded, so even small amounts help us greatly to improve the podcast. Kickback is a joint production by the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Köbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke, with music by Kaihan Golkar. That's it for today. Have a great week.